Hi everyone, welcome to Psychedelic Conversations. This is your hub for engaging in deep conversations around serotonergic hallucinogens that alter perceptions, affect cognitive processes, induce mystical and spiritual experiences. Enjoy the show. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Psychedelic Conversations. Today I have with me Darren LeBaron and he's from London. He's a mycologist and he's a psychedelic researcher. So really looking forward to dive into this conversation with him and also his collaborations across the board globally. So welcome Darren, it's great to have you. Thank you, Susan. I really appreciate the invitation to be here and share and have this conversation with you, man. Thank you. So you're in London, um, which is my hometown also. And I'm interested in how you came into psychedelic space and, and your relationship. And then we can go into your mycology and all the expertise that you provide. So that's something that I'm really interested to talk about today. And Leah, let's talk about your story. Tell us about your background. How did you find yourself in this position? Okay, so... Um... Where do I start? I think I'll start with just my introduction to psychedelics was actually when I was in school as a teenager. And um, it was primarily being discussed and shared amongst boys and girls that I was going to school with. And um, they were going out on weekends and doing, you know, um, pills and mushrooms and acid and stuff like that. And in my very early teens, up until my mid 30s, it was pretty much a no-go area. So although I was around people doing it, it wasn't something that I was interested in doing or partook in myself. So, um, but these were the people that I was first hearing about, you know, psychedelic experiences from the guys I went to school with, basically the white guys I went to school with who were my pals. They were coming on a Monday after a weekend and, you know, that Monday gathering of what happened over the weekend. And I remember them sharing stories about going up to, you know, the Hampstead Heath, or being in Camden Palais, like the local nightclub, and either, you know, meeting aliens, trees talking to them, you know, or talking to flowers and stuff like that while they were in the heat. And I thought they were crazy. You know, I thought they were, you know, they were bonkers and that they were on their way to destruction, you know, basically, because I come from a school of thought where, you know, um, it was just say no. That's how it was raised, you know, just say no to drugs in general, but culturally, you know, we had stimulants like marijuana, also known as cannabis, and alcohol in my immediate environment. And those were the, the drugs, the go-to drugs that most people I was around were partaking in and far from psychedelics. So, so they were, they were, would you say they were more accepted in your environment, the alcohol, the marijuana, cannabis? Yeah, yeah because, you know, alcohol is sold on your local shelves and local shops and stuff, so available and all celebrations that I'd ever been in and around pretty much involved alcohol just observing it as a child to moving into my teens that was the go-to thing you know the first thing 
you know, alongside cigarettes, which then leads to cannabis. And um, culturally coming, you know, having an African-Caribbean background, those are, you know, those are, those are our vices. Those are the things as young teenagers kind of introduced to, if you choose to start partaking in those substances. And for the most part, that's where it stays, you know, and then a few people here and there venture into, you know, other types of stimulants and some of the harder stuff. And, you know, I pretty much grew up where drugs was something that, you know, pretty much African and Caribbean people in my community sold. Uh, we didn't necessarily partake in these things. So and that's pretty much how I lived my life, you know, up and through my 20s and into my early 30s with, you know, psychedelics primarily being a taboo, you know, being something that you don't, you know, partake in. Yeah. Is that because it was more of known as recreational? Because now we're moving into the mental health space with, you know, with the psychedelic renaissance um, coming from that background of understanding, you know, also like growing up with this conditioning say no because mm. these were seen as a uh, dangerous drugs yeah, yeah because of like what are your thoughts on why did we get to this point of these are uh, dangerous drugs say no like in the 50s you know we we talk about a lot of us in the psychedelic space we talk about tim leary from going back mm. and uh, what happened how these were handled and why are we here like why did we because a lot of people say we lost decades of research, decades of progress. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, there's definitely, you know, there's truth to that. Um, I think everything happens in its season and it's just the story of entheogens. And I think the story that we're all referring to is primarily psychedelics in the West. It's not necessarily a global perspective that when we say these things that we're having um, because psychedelics have been used in indigenous cultures for millenniums now and they have an unbroken link of using these substances so I think it's once it migrated its way into the west you know into the Americas or North America and Europe um, in the you know like you said after people like Gordon Watson and Albert Hoffman and these guys you know were you know bringing these substances to the public forums that's when um, we saw the potential benefits benefits of these substances in you know in the west and yeah there was a you know there was a clampdown on these things and that goes back to as to why I wasn't privy to these things you know and many of us are not because if you're not in those social circles or in those schools of thought you was told that they're drugs they're bad you know and it wasn't for me going back to the initial point of it being recreational it's just that I had no knowledge about I didn't have knowledge you know true knowledge about these things it was coming by way of my young peers who also didn't have true knowledge and information about it they were just experimenting you know but um it was more a liberal um thing to be getting into compared to being a young black boy in london along with my peers who this was not the thing to be engaging in so to kind of go back to come forward to answer your question you know that's what led me on my journey and how i discovered you know um psychedelics was just by way of certain practices that I've, I've always had an interest in indigenous cultures and ancient history. And um, the more I delved into some of the practices that these groups from all around the world um, practice, you know, there was always, um, you know, references to sacred plants, you know, and how they were used in ritual ceremony, culturally, I'm aware that, you know, in the Caribbean with my family, you know, there's a lot of knowledge around the usage of plants for medicinal purposes. So you know, we have an abundance of this type of information, but it didn't necessarily line up with psychedelics. So as I delved into finding out more about certain practices, 
and learned that within the mystery systems of these schools of thought, there were there was a psychedelic component to that. And in my either I found that out, you know, in my in my mid to late twenties, I was really delving into this type of stuff. And even then, it was still not something that I wanted to partake in. You know, I was still of the kind of consciousness that you know you've got everything you need is inside of you. You don't need to be working with external things to find yourself, so to speak. Mm. it was still it took me many years of kind of coming back to that same place and coming back around to well look if these cultures are using them and they're using in this kind of you know in this set and setting as we would say now um i need to before i keep dismissing it as something that you shouldn't be delving into and just say no maybe i should give it a serious evaluation and the only way to give psychedelics a serious evaluation is to partake you know to mm. partake in them it took me until me being in my early 30s um, to have my first experiences and um, after having my first experiences I was like okay now I know why they're trying to prevent this type of stuff you know sort of follow up the question because it's a liberating technology you know it it opens up your psyche it allows you to discover your mind ultimately um, it's a tool a technology for you to enable to communicate with ancestors the unseen work world and all these kind of things and these are things that we're not taught you know taught about these are taboo subjects and are pretty much you know um, removed from the spiritual slash religious systems that a lot of us are you know introduced to from childhood so there's multiple reasons as to why I think we're at a point now where we're coming around to a, what some people may call a renaissance but, you know, why was it prevented? Why was access prevented to those people in the West, from the, you know, from the 1950s and 60s up until now? You know, what was that all about? And then, yeah, there's many, many angles or perspectives on that as well. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dia. This is uh, great. What you shared is so amazing because um, I think these are the conversations that needs to happen more often. People like you. When I watched your, you were a guest on the webinar. That's how I found out about you. And what really uh, stood out for me that you said, I think there was a question on the webinar, which was held by the Psychedelic Society, which I highly regard them as they're doing a great job also in this renaissance that we are always talking about now. And there was a question that really uh, stood out. Somebody said in the chat, they said, um, what about all these corporate companies trying to, uh, trying to, you know, jump in and uh, patent some of these things, the processes, mm-hmm. and, you know, in the mental health space. And I think you replied saying by, like, why do we always um, relate to psychedelics through this type of concept? You know, not everybody in the indig- indigenous cultures, they use them to heal mental health. Mm-hmm. They use them culturally, as a connection to the spirit, as a connection to their mind, to learn about themselves. Like uh, one of my favorite lecturer, you know, and also psychedelic frontier is Stan Grove. And he always talks about indigenous cultures only use them for divination, asking questions and meeting the spirit, like those kind of things. And then of, of course I understand why in the West, the mental health ridiculously um, is skyrocketed, especially in this pandemic, post-pandemic world. It just goes to show how disconnected we are that we need to, I mean, it's a great way to kind of come into the psychedelic space with uh, mental health. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, 
living in the West and understanding the structure and the life in the West, I think it's not a bad thing to come in from the mental health space because we need to kind of bring them back in somehow, right? Yeah, no, I'm with you. You know, there's a saying that I always say, it's pretty much getting where you fit in, you know, so everybody's got their own path, their own journey. And um, those that are out there that are challenged by mental health, you know, issues um, and are privy to this knowledge and information should explore psychedelics from that perspective and do their utmost to understand it and apply it in their way of life. But um, at the same time, we cannot disregard that there's some people who don't have mental health challenges, so to speak, or they're not dealing with, you know, psychedelics from that mental health perspective. And their approach is as valid as the person who's approaching it from a mental, you know, studying it from a mental health perspective. As we mentioned, you know, before we started recording, just even from a recreational perspective, we call it, you know, cognitive liberty. People who are in their own minds, you know, in the, the right mindset should be able to make decisions for themselves. You know, I'm deciding that I want to drink water. If I want to, I could be drinking a pint of lava, you know, or I could drink, you know, petrol if I wanted to. As long as I'm not causing harm to anybody else, you know, it's a decision, the conscious decision that I make. So I feel that people should be able to do what they want to do as long as they're not harming other people. You know, that's kind of like the common school of thought. So yes, mental health plays a big part in this part of the world where we're challenged by these things. But where you go to these cultures where they've been using them for millenniums now, you find that they don't have these mental health challenges. They're not using psychedelics to deal with anxiety, depression or PTSD or alcohol or heroin addiction and these types of things. These are challenges that we have in this part of the world. And I guess that's why there's quite a bit of focus on dealing with that because the approach, the systems that they have in place now, their approach isn't working, obviously. So they're looking at alternatives and that's why they refer to it as an alternative medicine. But in fact, it's the original medicine. And I don't even like to use the term medicine in, in regards to that because medicine is referring to you, you know, needing some something because you're sick, because you're ill, you have these challenges. But in these cultures, they don't have these challenges because they're used in a preventative measure. You know, I was taught prevention is better than cure. You know, so rather than seeing these as things that cure these illnesses, they actually can support in preventing them. So that's how these cultures have been using them and why they don't have heroin addicts and have to have alcohol centers, AA centers, and all the things that we're dealing with in this part of the world. So, but yeah, that's, that's a cultural thing as well. Yeah, that's, a, that's an amazing point to make. Um, I heard that Mazatebek tribes, there are still, you know, up and running even to this day. They, are, they give uh, ceremonies for their five-year-olds like an initiation ceremony with mushrooms, just to cele celebrate the survival of the toddler stage. <laughs> I think that's a, such a great idea. Um, and I think I know where you're going with this, um, that psychedelics are not used as a means to treat mental illnesses, addiction in these cultures because they don't have any. Why we can always say maybe because they're connected from the beginning to the spirit they are connected to their own own internal navigation system. Mm. Um, you know, they rather use these to explore, maybe to use them as ally, even to, um, it's crazy for us in the West that, you know, there's ayahuasca tourism, you probably heard, mm. that uh, people are going there to heal, uh, to do inner child work. Like inner child work, if you was to talk about this to an indigenous person, he'd be like, inner child work what is that so um and then coming back to the mazatebek tribes like they were clever people 
yeah. initiating their children into this. I, I see this as a rites of passage for children. Mm. But then, then they become so connected with the spirit. They, they build that connection. Because then I, I read another paper where they kind of followed about five or six of these children right. to see where they were going with this and how their lives turned out. And, and guess what? They all ended up in some kind of service to humanity, anthropology, philanthropy. You know, they always picked something that was good for them, good for the planet, good for everyone. Yeah. So, yeah, it just kind of, so, so going back to what you said, these are to keep our connection mm. solid and grounded so that, you know, look, look at the mess in the West because of the disconnection and look at the childbirth. You know, I talk about, because of my holistic psychotherapy, I talk about childbirth a lot. Right. Um, we talk about inner, inner child healing, you know, childhood and early life traumas. But I mean, it's not, it doesn't start there, does it? It starts way before. It's in the, the process of the birth, the clinical birth itself. They say it's very mm. traumatic. Mm-hmm. But then if you look at these tribes or the, or the indigenous people, they have ritualized the birthing process to minimize the child trauma. Yeah, yeah. So the baby, you know, the baby, it's minimized the impact because the, the whole birthing is sacred and ritualized and it's full of prayer and intention. And it reminds me of psychedelics. You know, they say set, setting and intention changes the, the experience, for example. Mm-hmm. So if, you know, all of these traditions and everything is gone out the window because the industrialized way of living, you know, it has its place, you know, it serves us well. We now get to speak to each other on Zoom. We get mm-hmm. to sit on a comfortable chair and we can just go to the supermarket and then everything's packaged and everything's clean. But then, you know, it, it severed the, the connection to the spirit, which again, we now hear where we are. And I just wanted to take your thoughts on that. Cause I know you said similar things on the webinar, which really moved me. And that's why this conversation is happening now. Okay. Well, yeah, you know, so culturally, you know, I'm aware that, you know, we're born into spirit, we're from spirit, we're born into spirit. And, um, you know, those are the, those are the traditions that these, you know, most cultures around the world have set up, you know, and those rites of passages, those ceremonies have been removed, you know, and um, it's not always lights, bubbles and rainbows and unicorns. And it's not, you know, life is and can be traumatic. And I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, oh, there's no mental health challenges in Indigenous cultures. There's no problems and trauma. Yeah, there is, but they have a different approach and way of dealing with it. That's, you know, that's that's the whole, you know, what the technology or the, you know, using it, I refer to, you know, um, the psychedelics is technology, but, you know, that's what it enables you to do as a, it's a, as a form of divination. You know, it's a, you know, it's a Wi-Fi, a Bluetooth connection that enables you to connect with, people in the here and now and people who have been here who are not here now and um, that wisdom and knowledge has been passed on in those traditions and cultures and amongst those people and they know what to do with it so it's not just you know um, birth you know or when they're five years old it's pre pre the physical incarnation of this child into physical form that they're conscious and aware of and are using the medicines or the technology to enable them to find out, okay, we want to bring a child through. We want to bring a child through into this realm. And when we brought this child through into this realm, you know, we're short of maybe some shepherds or some craftsmen, you know, so we're going to 
divine to pull a child through that will be fit for purpose for our community and at the same time give them all they need to support them in becoming and um you know part of that exchange is you know that in some cult traditions you know the family you know that they you know they do their divinations in understanding the child that they may be putting through or is who is requesting to come through and um you know, the parents would then conceive the child under the influence of using these plants. You know, the mother would be, you know, carrying the child for nine months, you know, microdosing and doing various other ceremonies that enable and prepare her for, you know, the delivery of this child. Child microdoses as a child because it's getting it through the breast milk of the mother. So, yeah, you're there forever connected to, you know, the technology and what it gives you access to. So, yeah, you see this thread that, you know, when you find adults in these communities you find out that they're just really cool nice people you know they're very complementary to nature amongst themselves like I said not to say they don't have any politics but it's done in different ways than just picking up tanks and missiles and bombs if we disagree with each other and feeling that we need to take each other out like that again not to say that there isn't warfare and in these places but even then there's just a way that you know these groups primarily go about dealing with these things that is less destructive than where we're currently at now yeah yeah i love that <clears throat> i love the analogy and uh, one of the things that stan said which really uh, also helped me understand he said that <clears throat> when these substances landed in the 50s we didn't have the container we didn't have the culture around it we didn't have the understanding so they became a threat because we just don't know what to do with these powerful substances yeah, I feel, if I'll be honest, I just think in the West, we didn't, well, I say we, the people who were in power at that time and governing these things, didn't respect the people where these plants were coming from, because we did have the information, because I'm uncovering it now for myself, that there's unbroken links amongst these groups have been using these plants, but there was a lack of respect for these groups and honouring the efforts that they've been putting in in understanding these technologies. So if you've got groups that have been using these for hundreds of years, and you've just come across this, why wouldn't you then go and, you know, have some form of exchange with these groups if you're sincere and genuine about understanding what it is rather than dismissing them, maybe because they look and appear primitive to the world that we're, you know, that we're currently engaging in and, you know, not respecting their understanding of it. Because for the most part, coming from an African perspective, you know, all, all these practices were called voodoo, juju, you know, they were labeled bad and dark and black magic and all of these kind of things. But when you really unpack it all, it's what we're talking about in the West understanding now. That's what we were doing, you know, and, you know, that's not being, you know, respected over, you know, over, over hundreds of years now. And um, to this day, I still say the same, you know, if you've got groups have been, we've got an unbroken link in working with these plants, you know, it's only kind of like at the last straw that we feel the need to find out, you know, what they really, what they've learned and what they bring to the table. You know, you know, no, you know, acknowledging people like Gordon Watson, who, you know, basically supported the knowledge and wisdom of the psilocybin mushrooms into the West, you know, um, done an amazing job because that's why we've got, we're privy to this stuff now. But in essence, there was a disrespect to Maria Sabina, who, he learned the knowledge and wisdom from or had his first experiences with that impacted on the cultures there. And I think this is kind of like a common theme when we'll deal with the West and its relationship with indigenous cultures around the world to this day. There's a lack of respect. So no, there's always been vessels and ways of holding this. We've just not respected the people who are the gatekeepers of this information. That's what I feel. I love the gatekeepers, the concept of gatekeepers. 
Uh, and is that let, before we dive into the gatekeepers concept, can we say it's because um, the evolutionary process in the West was um, it was it gained momentum, and you know technology was really fast, and then suddenly you know the language evolved, all these sophisticated way of dressing and speaking and uh, you know education the academia because um another one that i think stan says um we started to seeing these processes like even with the um rituals around psychedelics for example you know when it's taken in a ceremonial setting as in a group um some of these indigenous people are kind of they dance around the moon you know like natives and all these different different people are kind of creating such a ritual as a tribe, as a community. And then as the, the Western evolutionary process was gaining momentum, that was like you said earlier, it was seen as a primitive, something in the past. We're not them anymore. We're moving on. We're becoming more, you know, do you think there was like an arrogant sort of approach? Because yeah. You know, yeah. we moved on. We're now changing. We are yeah, evolving. Yeah. Well, definitely. I think that's one reason why there's a lot of talk of ego death in this part of the world when it comes to psychedelics as well. So for lack of a better term, ego, you know, there's that and that arrogance that, you know, you know, that that approach, because when you really study these indigenous cultures, they are far from not advanced. They're really advanced, probably more advanced than we are here. We're just catching up with some of the knowledge and wisdom that they were dealing with and have been dealing with for a long time maybe just because we think we wear suits and hats and ties and things that that's advanced but that isn't advanced you know i, I, I can share you know come my background in horticulture i've learned you know uh, uh, an approach a design approach called permaculture and permaculture is like a new trendy thing you know for the last 10 20 years you know well longer than that but you know again it's there's a there was a renaissance but when you get into the essence of what permaculture is all about, it's the practices of what these indigenous cultures were dealing with and practicing, you know, working with the resources that they had around them. So why, you know, cut down a tree or, you know, burn things that um, destroy the planet to build something new when we can use these plants around us, for example, to build houses from, you know, like they, they're sufficient enough to, to hold for us to hold our family units in them. And um, we don't need to make build big concrete buildings, so to speak, you know, and go through all these processes in creating and building that are actually detrimental to the planet. So it's not an advancement, definitely, in the world that we're in now. It may appear to be, you know, like I've said, we've got technology and stuff, but this technology, this technology has been used by indigenous cultures here. They just didn't necessarily have to build physical devices all the time to access it and use that type of communication. So I think they're more advanced than we give them credit for. And a lot of these groups talk about how they've been here and done this before. You know, they've become so advanced in the past that they destroyed themselves. They destroyed their cultures and their communities. So a lot of them choose to keep it simple. And I think being in this part of the world, we're honest in the West, it's the youngest child, you know, out of all, <laughs> of all the, you know, the cultures around the world. So they're just going through the same cycles that other groups have already gone through. And that's why they're sitting back and observing watching their children saying oh my gosh can't you see what you're doing you know you're going about this all wrong thinking that you're progressing and moving forward but you're actually not and you know there's still a lot to learn from these advanced so-called primitive groups that would make us have a reality check and realize that we're not as advanced as we really think we are you know yeah. or you may have heard of you know Atlantis and all of these phenomenal you know places and spaces where there was high level cultures and 
communities and technologies. And even if you don't believe in the mythology of Atlantis, we can just look at groups like, you know, the ancient Egyptians, you know, the Dogon tribes in Africa, the Zulu, the sand people, the Twa, the so-called pygmies of Central Africa. They have knowledge and wisdom that they were able to observe um, things in our world now that we're only just discovering, you know, or we had to build, you know, telescopes and microscopes and things like that, that we would call high in science to discover, but they already were privy to this stuff. So how did they know about this? And what would us, what makes us think that they're, you know, backwards or slow or not as advanced as where we are now? They just had a different approach to dealing with it and understanding it. That's how I understand it. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And I heard that, uh, I think it was Michael Pollan said once on his, one of his lectures, he said, um, Steve Jobs said, the reason Apple is Apple because of my LSD use. Something yeah, like perhaps. that. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, I see where you're going with, like, the technology was there. We think we're progressing in the West, but these are just the manifestation of these kind of experiences, like advanced um, wisdom, mm. advanced knowledge, because, um, you know, even these concrete buildings and this, it's, it's mind-blowing how we are progressing in the West, but at the same time, it comes at a cost. There's a consequence of disconnection from our own, you know, navigation system. People are numbing down. People are alone, lonely. And this pandemic, another friend of mine in psychedelic space, he said this was a global rites of passage. Mm. This, wasn't, this wasn't some man-made stuff. This has actually happened for a reason. It's a good thing because it, it was a global rites of passage for us to come back and realize what's what we are doing mm. to the planet, to, to everything. And I think that's, there's a, you know, it's a great insight to, to have that perspective. And also, um, I just want to come back to what you said earlier about the gatekeepers. So how do you, how do you, how, what would you say on that concept of gatekeepers? Like, who are they? So, you know, so I think it's really simple and straightforward. They are the people who the plants were gifted to. You know, you know that you only find certain plants and species in certain parts of the world. So, for example, if we're talking about ayahuasca, you know, it was gifted to those people in the Amazon region. So they are the gatekeepers of that plant and that technology. You know, if you go to Central and West Africa, you will find Iboga and you're not going to find it anywhere else, you know, amongst, you know, just within those regions of Central and West Africa. So they are the gatekeepers. They are the custodians of the plant and the information that comes along with that. So, you know, if you go to Mexico and you find Salvia divinorum, you're not going to find it anywhere else. So those people in those regions are the gatekeepers are the custodians of that, you know, the wisdom and knowledge that is held within those plants. And the amazing thing about fungi is that they're on all the continents and we are all the custodians of and gatekeepers of this, of the knowledge and wisdom that comes along with that. But um, I'm saying that to say that with these various plants, you know, that you find in specific places in the world, the groups that have been dealing with this these plants have got advanced knowledge and wisdom about how to use it so um i think they should be respected and then with that said i think when you you know that's on the physical level but when you start partaking in the plants from those particular regions you may then start to realize that these groups or people that come from these plants and deal with them you know are encoded within the plants they the plants are encoded within them so you may partake in substances and then see these types of people, you know, in the, you know, if you take ayahuasca, you might, you could be in the UK, but you start seeing things that happen in the Amazon, 
you know, or you take in, you know, uh, the plant Iboga and you start seeing African symbology and stuff like that because it's encoded in the plants because it's encoded in the soil and the same plants and the same people come from the same soil. So it's all really, you know, straightforward in, you know, in principle, but, you know, I don't understand why it's difficult for people to, you know, respect the fact that it was gifted to particular peoples because of the, the conditioning that we've got. So, you know, in the West, you know, history has shown that, you know, they're, you know, they've, you know, pretty much capitalised by stealing and pillaging and um, not respecting other cultures, you know, or even, you know, for the last four or five hundred years of going around colonising places. So I would like to think that with this global rights, again, it's, you know, I, I totally agree and I understand, you know, it's, it's impacted the globe. But again, it's mainly people who are in the West or who have been impacted by the West and it's colonialism or they were victims of the West. These are, you know, it's really, I'm sure, I'm really sure if you go to certain places in the world right now, they haven't got a clue about Corona and COVID-19 and they live a primitive life and they're in there, you know, and they don't engage in this world. You know, it's only if you're, you're engaging in this, this world and, you know, you've got a TV in your house and a radio and a mobile phone and you've, you've kind of gone that route. And many cultures, you know, around the world had the option to go that route or not to go. You know, they had the red pill, blue pill kind of... Mm-hmm. Then in some cases it was forced, you know, on particular groups that you have to be part of this way of life. And, you know, that's what I think it's those of us that are in this spell, in this, you know, um, consciousness, we need to, you know, we need, yeah, we need the work done, the healing done more than anybody else. Yeah, yeah. So these are the people that I feel should be referred to and respected and accessed when it's time to, address these plants especially if we're talking about mental health especially if we're talking about recreationally and everything in between because they do it all as well they use these things recreationally they also use them spiritually and they're more qualified than us to give us answers as to how we should be using these plants and it shouldn't be dictated by maybe a doctor who's not even never tried these things you know he's only studied them under a microscope and through clinical trials and stuff like that so you know it's just finding the balance man that's how I feel yeah yeah makes sense i just want to quickly go back to what you said about the covid like it's true a lot of people i mean we've been doing this because i have this group facebook group where we kind of do meditation challenges and as soon as the covid kind of kicked off the the whole thing was about okay unplug yourselves from tvs unplug yourselves from these mainstream news because otherwise you're going to be sucked into it and you'll be counting this death um, count, you know, and this fear will control you. And then we all know now that this level of fear can impact the immune system. So you're going to make yourself vulnerable. Um, But it's very difficult for, like you said, for a lot of people who are under spell, we call it, I like that word under spell, because when you're under spell, it's very difficult to understand this, right? This seems very simple, right? Mm. In a situation like this, what is the most healthiest thing to do? Unplug yourself from the mainstream, right? Mm. Because otherwise you'll be from waking hours to sleep, you're going to be watching the death tolls and how much is impacting this and that in other countries and what cities. Um, I know that in London, there was this thing started, was it an app or something? where you could actually download and then it was like a, a real time 
you can see in your area the death rates or something like that. It was crazy scary. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So imagine like, you know, sitting in your home. If this is a right for the whole people under the spell, then obviously we don't know how to use this time. Obviously, mm-hmm. like we don't understand the preciousness of you've given an opportunity here. You are now being, you know, you you know you're made to stay at home. Mm-hmm. So you're no longer going to work, which means you know. I remember before pre-COVID, everybody was saying, I don't have time. I'm, I'm working six days a week. I've got no time to rest. So now you have, yeah. right? But what happened? Yeah. Everything came crashing down, mental health spiked. And um, I think um, I have a theory that the pandemic um, confronted the relationships the most, relationship with ourselves and our partners, people, intimate families, friends, I think everyone I know in my social surrounding are divorcing. It's that big. And I think this comes down to confronting our own self, relationship with ourselves. Um, But when you talk about the indigenous wisdom, my dilemma is how do we, not that we can help anybody, but how can we relay the message that this is a gift this is an opportunity. Stay at home, turn inward, do your work. This is a gift. This is a, you know, one time in your life, maybe. It's a biblical experience, a biblical event, right? But yet then you are dealing with um, people who are under spell, which is my new favorite thing. And they're continually waiting at home for the lockdown to be over so that we can go back to normal. Mm. No, I'm with you. I, I can, I can yeah. relate to it. I can relate to what you're saying. You know, I have again different perspectives. I honestly feel that you know, if it took the pandemic and Corona, COVID, call it what you want, to wake you up, that's really cool. You know, um, that's you know, that's 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 positive. Um, but if you really had to wait for that, it's also a sad thing because this has been ongoing. This is, you know, these challenges that we're facing have been taking place regardless. And, um, you know, whether it's, you know, the, you know, whether it was just now they've given us the death of COVID, you know, patients and stuff like that, you know, all you had to do before COVID was put on the news and they're going to give you deaths of, you know, a war somewhere else. You know, that was all they've ever been feeding us really priorities like fear and death and, warmongering and things like that so I'm saying that to say that if you didn't see it then to see it now may not be easy because the people who are delivering it to you are saying that they're doing it in your you know in your best interest so it's really conflicting it's going to be it's going to be hard to you know go against the people who are saying that they're doing this for your you know to, to help and serve you so um it's confusing people and people are you know are kind of stuck with it so for me, this isn't, for, you know, like, you know, like you said, we can't save everyone. It's not about saving anybody, ultimately, but yourself. And I think the way you go about doing it is just being an example. You know, you just got to keep doing what you're doing and you're going to either or not inspire people, you know, to want to know more, want to explore more, want to know, well, how do you and why do you think the way that you do, Susan, around this? And if they don't, if they think you're crazy and you should just go and get the vaccine and do whatever, then leave them to it. You know, like that's... 
that's the way the earth and these cycles have been going as long as I've been alive, at least anyway. So um, for me personally, you know, I'm not, you know, talking, you know, anti-vaccine now because of COVID and, you know, this type of like, I've not been down for vaccines since I became, you know, I can't even put there in there. So I bought this book way back in the days, you know, when I was in my late teens. So I'm, I'm in my forties now. So I've had this book since I was in my, like 19 years old. So I've got children who have never had a vaccine and my oldest is 19 years old. So um, me not feeling vaccines isn't something I've just come around to wanting to tell people and wake people up now. This was something that I've been doing for, you know, 20 plus years. So, um, and, and I knew 20 plus years ago when I was telling people vaccines were dangerous then, you know, I was considered crazy and, you know, stupid, you know, I'm taking risks and chances even by people within my own circle. So um, I've learned then that I can't convert everybody. I can't get every, I'm not even my own family. So let alone any Tom, Dick or Harry that's, you know, lives on my high street or is walking down the street. So that, that's not my job to do that at the end of the day. But what my job is to do is just stand on my square, speak my piece, say my piece, get in where I fit in. And those who do pick up on it and are inspired by what I do, how I, what I say, how I move, just like I'm inspired by other people, what they do, what they say and how they move. And then you connect and that's just the way I think it's always gone but because it's such a global phenomenon there's more people having this conversation now but, um, but yeah there's going to be as many people confused about what's going on now as well there's not there's not a lot of clarity around it so yeah. you need to watch you know um stuff that isn't you know adding to contributing to the spell you got you know you've got to break down those barriers break down or remove those layers as well. And that's work that not many people are ready and prepared to do. Like you said, they've been gifted the freedom and time to discover themselves and they, they're, they're frustrated because they're not at work. You know, it's like, man, I've not got work and I need to be in my job because their job has become them. And, you know, it's, it takes away from that. You're not your job. You know, you was here before your job. You're going to be here after your job. And if you passed away, you know, made the transition tomorrow, your job would replace you by Monday, you know, and it, it's not, you know, you, it's not the be all and end all, but um, that's how we've been groomed, you know, since childhood, go to school and get a job, you know, that's kind of what, what we're told. So when you've been given that freedom, it's like, well, what am I meant to be doing? I feel like I'm being lazy, I'm being idle. We've not been given skills that enable us to go within ourselves and even just, you know, the fact that you could just go to your park, go to your forest, you know, go out and spend time with nature, with your family, you know, just having these kinds of quality experiences and time with your loved ones, we find even find that difficult. Like you said, people are actually splitting up and getting divorced and stuff because they're spending so much time together, you know, and in the same space and place and not, you know, not knowing how to really communicate and stuff. So yeah, it's really interesting the, the space we're in now, but again, you are not here, you're not here, you know, to save everybody or anybody but yourself, you know, that's how, I, that's how I understand it. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, um, just going back to what you said about um, people who's given the opportunity to do the work, they won't do it. Because you and I, we both know that exploring the self is one of the most painful things to do, to confront yourself, to go inside and really undo all of these things as you know the conditionings the layerings and and in the uh, therapy space we call that capacity I think what people really lack is the capacity to do the work because 
Imagine if a child has been given from the very young age, you know, if the child learns to always look outside, imagine, and then you're, you're dealing with grown-ups in their 30s, 40s, 50s sometimes. They never had to trust themselves or even the concept of like trusting myself, making a decision, taking responsibility. These are like so unknown in the... Um, in the Western life, because we are conditioned to always, you know, look on the outside and, you know, get your answers from somebody, an authority figure, you know, your doctor knows your body better than you, you know, they will prescribe mm -hmm. the right medicine, um, you know, like the governments will tell you what's going on with the COVID and you have to just like, okay, vaccines and all these things like we didn't learn. And, and now I see a, a really huge value in, um, one of my mini blogs was can psychedelics be a family affair and this was inspired by the um, Mazatebek tribes initiating their children at the age of five and you talked about some indigenous people where they can see through psychedelics which i have actually a really lovely shaman friend also been can can you know conceived through psychedelics ayahuasca actually and mm -hmm. and she had her baby through the same process uh, she she took medicines while she was breastfeeding everything so and this was like this is what I'm inspired and I think I feel like the younger the children are given the opportunity to stay connected because they are connected and and uh, in the west we do a good job of disconnecting them and severing them from the spirit and their intuition and I mean children are like if you hang out with a five-year-old my god they're so wise they're so connected. They, they're not scared to feel. I mean, I don't know how we started to believe that a, if a toddler is having a tantrum, like we immediate response, stop them crying. It's embarrassing. Like if, especially if they are doing this outside in a gathering or some restaurant or a place, like you got to bribe them straight away, give them a phone, give them an iPad, give them ice cream, stop them. And yet we dismiss the fact that this toddler has no inhibitions in feeling. And the reason that this whole thing is taking place because he's letting and allowing himself to feel whatever he's feeling. And that's an amazing thing. We should be celebrating that. Instead, mm -hmm. we kind of like, stop, stop, get up, quick, shh, quiet. We give you a little sweetie and I give them a bribe. But, and then the kids, you know, learn to suppress, suppress, suppress. And that's how we, you know, contribute to to severing them from the skin. Mm. But, you know, and they demonstrate, like you hang out with a toddler, honestly, you hang out with them. They, they are all about feeling. They're so in the heart, so in the gut, and they're like incredible. And um, one of the authors that I love, I've forgotten her name now, but she says uh, children are actually, they live in that non-ordinary psychedelic state. So, um, it's a beautiful thing and, and, and these indigenous people, you know, keeping that connection going forward by initiating from a child age of, you know, very young age. I think it's incredible. If you say that to someone in the West, they think you lost your mind. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. because people have this incredible stigmatization around psychedelics. Because you said earlier, it took you so long to really dive into it. It was late 20s because like just say no that 
was engineered in the way you know in the west that it was i think it's they did a really great job that um i speak to so many grown-ups and they carry heavy stigmatization around psychedelics and uh Sometimes I say to myself, thank God, I'm not coming from a recreational place where I don't know that space. Like, I don't know what it is to, to feel that stigma because I don't know. I never use it recreationally. Again, you said earlier, it's okay to use it recreationally, but I don't come, that, come from that space where I never heard these, these were like bad and, um, and there's a connotation of negativity around these substances growing up in London. So therefore, when I discovered them, I came into the space with the utmost respect and humility. And uh, that was a game changer. And um, so when I meet somebody who carries a stigma, I have to remind myself, they don't know what you, or they don't have the experience that you had. They, you know, it, it's very like, it's very difficult. Like you can't even say, um, why do you think like that? They're not that, you know, these substances are not what you think they are. Obviously you can't tell people because they need to go through the experience. Mm. And sometimes because of that, they limit, they stop exploring because of the stigma. And um, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Can we have psychedelics as a family affair sometime in the future, maybe hopefully? Okay, so bear with me because that alarm went off, so I'm going to go and turn off and then I'll okay. come back and answer the question. Go for it. It's taking a 30 second break. Yes, psychedelic okay. being a family affair, hopefully in the West sometime soon. So uh, there's a few things that come out of what you were sharing. So just to go back when you mentioned about tantrums, because I think that's interesting. In one of the presentations that I deliver, I can't remember the author's name now, but there's a book out and uh, papers and articles that have been written about why African toddlers do not have tantrums. And they go into great detail as to what, why is it in the West that children, toddlers have tantrums? You know, and although it is a form of expression, which we're not trying to suppress, you know, what, what is the root cause of that? So they really went into exploring. And some of the research that came out of that work was um, that, you know, it, it was a connection of the child to the mother, you know, being breastfed and not just quickly being whipped off the breast, you know, after a few months and being given powdered milk. And there were so many things, the way that the mothers carry the children after they're born, that they've always got this heart-to-heart -heart connection where the child is placed on the mother. So there's various rituals and practices and customs that keep the child connected to the mother and the family unit in a way that we don't practice in this day just you know even when a child is born in the hospital you know it's immediately removed from the mother you know um separated you know and then you know all these things you know the umbilical cord is cut you know pretty much immediately and these are all things that just don't happen with these cultures where they say that the child is more connected to the family to the you know to the mother in particular and this is then what reduces the trauma, you know, as, as we refer to it, that a child would experience. So um, with that said, like, can we and how can we see psychedelics being part of the family setup? Well, 
I'm here to share with you if you don't know, you know, around the world, it's, it's, it's happening, it's already happening, it has been happening, you know, that's why we've got to this day and time where we're speaking about these things, it's just that it had to be suppressed and it went underground because it, in this part of the world it was illegal. So we do have cultures and traditions where they have it in the family, like you said, the Mazapotec amongst, like, let's not discredit them that they've been doing it and still have been doing it. So it's not a thing like, will we get there? We are there, and I don't see myself separate from these groups and traditions that have been doing it. It's just that I was, you know, part of a story where my people were disconnected from their original lands, brought to other lands, and, you know, this is what's going on now. But there's no reason as to why outside of the law, so make sure you do it in places where you can legally do it without, you know, any trouble coming to you, and you can be part of cultures and traditions and the ways of life where this is part of the family setup. So like I said, whether it's that you was born into this, that you was conceived under the influence, you've been microdosing since you was a newborn because your mother was using it and it's coming through the breast milk, or you was five, six, seven, nine, 12, whatever age, where you're given your first dosages, part of your initiation into womanhood or manhood. You know, these are things and customs that exist now. They're, they're, they're happening now. We should be shouting and speaking about it because we could learn from them. So yes, in England, maybe in the United States, throughout Europe, these things are taboo. These things are not being discussed, but there are families, there were hippies back in the days that didn't stop taking psychedelics, although they were made legal. And their children, well, some of them were the children that I went to school with who were taking psychedelics. And I thought that it was bad and wrong, but they were, you know, they, they it, was, it was something that was culturally accepted within their household because their parents had been doing it in the 50s and the 60s. So them in the 80s, when they were first experiencing it, their parents encouraged them to do it. So it's not that it hasn't it's been a total disconnection. It's there, but yeah, it's not out in the mainstream. And everything doesn't have to be out in the mainstream. That's just the reality. You know, I come from a background where I listen to music and a lot of the music I listened to was underground. It wasn't the popular music, but it was still relevant. I still, you know, got what I needed to get from it. And, you know, you've got cult followings and groups that just keep those things alive. So there's some people who have kept that those traditions alive and it's part of the family structure. You know, I've, I've been traveling the world now and got to speak with people who work with their family from very young because they know as well that in Mexico, in Africa and South America that they give these things to their children. They've now got children. They've taken it, had the experiences, but they give it to their children. But they can't publicly come out and say that because, you know, you know they would be considered a bad parent and irresponsible because it's against the law. So... We just need to know that just because it's not being advertised and put out there, that it's not happening. That's what I've discovered, yeah. Yeah. Due to illegalities and due to the nature of the substances, how it's controlled now. So are you telling me that these are already happening underground and there's only a very small group of, like, small mainstream group of people that still carry a lot of stigma? But... Um, I, I read somewhere. Probably the majority, it's probably the majority of people carry the stigma because of the mind control and how it, you know, how it's looked on. But if we're talking about the people that are within the communities, that are within the psychedelic community, these things are not a taboo. You know, they are, they, it's discussed about giving your children psychedelics. You know, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying that these are conversations that take place in these communities because mm -hmm. these are the people who are taking these substances. So they have those discussions. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that's what I like when um, the shaman that I worked with from the Peruvian indigenous culture, she said, um, she said the reason she chose to do this with the baby is because she doesn't want her to grow up and sit in ceremonies for healing. 
but rather sit in ceremony for exploration yeah for another yeah. for another intention not to come there to to heal the traumas like yeah. the western the mainstream you know western people are trying to do yeah because that you know that's just it's just a shame that this is the story that's been created in this part of the world and that's how we need to approach not just psychedelics but most of the healing technologies out there are to deal with the the, all the mess all the messing around that they've done over the years you know whether it's insecurities about how you look how you feel about yourself because of programming by way of the tv you know you've got to look a certain way you've got to be a certain way you've got to look cool you've got to be cool all these things have created the mental health challenges you know why suicide was high before covid you know it's not because of covid you know that we've had these challenges and now this is just kind of like a reality check as to you know some of the you know mishaps that we've been living in in the west and it's normal like we consider it normal you know and like that's not cool <laughs> but it's normal it's, it was the norm it's normal to have you know to feel down about yourself to feel depressed to feel anxious the, and, and then we just live with it and then yeah we pass it on to the next generation so yeah somewhere down the line people need to take responsibility I guess and say well where do we you know where do we nip this in the bud where do we you know make a change and it comes with like what you said the woman who you're working with or familiar with in Peru who will say, you know, with my next generation, I'm going to give them this technology so they don't have to pick up the luggage. They don't have to pick up the baggage. They don't need to pick up the trauma that they didn't have to lay down when they're in their mid twenties or thirties, having a midlife crisis, you know, in their forties and deciding what am I here for on earth? And, you know, I'm not just a mother or I'm not just a father. I'm not just a bus driver or, you know, whatever job or title that they've given you. These were things that you would have discovered when you was, six, seven, eight, nine years old, when you would have partaken in these plants as a child in your rites of passage to know what you've come to earth for. So yeah, this is, you know, where, where we're coming back around to what and how advanced these groups are and what they were dealing with as far as why they don't have the challenges that we have now. That's such yeah. a big thing in the West. Yeah, I really like the insights. And I think um, coming back to the, uh, the tantrum thing, I think the doctor you're talking about is Dr. Marte. Um, he talks, yeah, Dr. Marte, he wrote a book about attachment where I think I, I heard him talk about on one of his lectures, he said, um, in Africa, um, when a child is born, the child is passed around the tribe women, like they never, they never leave them down until the age of seven. They are carried in their back and that, you know, on their chest and they they looked after by many different women and they just so connected um so i i highly regard that i think there's huge lessons to learn here and in the west um i also have a very close friend a midwife with nhs in london especially and uh, she's seen she helps people deliver you know she's she's present in these uh, delivery rooms for the clinical birthing and uh, again and again she sees women um, helping women obviously uh, with their pro process and um, even after and again and again she sees women literally just wanting to have a child really quickly so mm -hmm. that they can go back to their size eight genes mm. yeah all that type of stuff yeah I can I can imagine yeah I, I'm I'm part I'm, I'm part and parcel I'm a product of this environment as well so I, I, I get it, you know, and it's like just growing and maturing out of those ideas that, you know, don't serve us well. I remember when my child, my firstborn was born 
and you know pre the birthing of her you know you have to go to the hospital and stuff and check things out and there was a poster on the wall and it was like a poster of a woman um, breastfeeding her child like a newborn and you know and the poster's title says something along the lines of you know now I know what my breasts are for wow and like it just hit its own because you know like growing up you know it's like my breasts were something that I saw on page three in the newspapers you know where that you push up and it's to attract men and it's you know these kind of ideas around your body but yeah your breasts are actually to feed the next generation that's what they were designed for that's what they're for you know great you can put piercings in them and do stuff and you know but that they're your breast off to feed a child you know and this is some of the kind of basic knowledge and wisdom that you're given in these rites of passages you know you learn about your body your body parts so then you can walk around naked and not be insecure about how you look because it's not about that you know it's not really about those things and you know we've been taught we've been taught backwards for lack of a better word you know about how we should you know look and see these things so that's why then we want to be a size a or as a man i want to make sure my pecs look a certain way or my penis is a certain size or it's not going to be a satisfaction it's like what is this really about what is what what is the technology there for and does it serve its purpose and if it does then that's what it's there for and we get caught up in a lot of you know physical material ideas that don't serve us for and actually are really bad for us you know but for our mental health and that's why we have anxiety that's why we have depression because my penis isn't big enough or my boobs ain't big enough or my ass is flat and all these kind of things where it's just not really about these things and we're trying to get back to that. I missed the point of why you've actually got breasts for, why you've got lips and a nose for, you know, these, why you've got eyelashes for, you know, like these are, like, we don't even know why we've got, I wasn't taught these things in school, really. You know, I had to find these things out in my later, you know, teens and adulthood. Then you're like, oh, so why are you cutting this off? And why are you taking that away and removing this when it actually serves a purpose? You know, it starts you getting dust out of your eyes and stuff like that, you know, it's like really useful. So, yeah, if we get back to that type of stuff, then I think we would have less hang-ups. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, there is a documentary called Childhood 2.0. Um, I think it's free to watch on YouTube. Anybody listening to our conversation can check it out. And I was shocked to find out that there are child suicides around age of five, six, even as young as that, um, in teens, um, just because they didn't get enough likes on their Instagram post. So yeah, you're right. Like it's kind of, this has been going on for for a long time. And this is like you said, this is the last drop. I think pandemic is just the last drop of us waking up to this um, desensitized reality that we've been programmed for. Mm. And um, yeah, we're gonna have to come back to the connection whether we like it or not. And one thing I wanna just mention, you said earlier, see, there is this concept in the <clears throat> this modern new age spirituality that people are talking about these are the great times like we're living in an interesting time and this is this is it like this is the moment mm. this is the great awakening mm. i find that really funny because people have gone through these understandings over and over again for millennia right and for some reason, we have this habit of making it so special. Like yeah. we have this um, idea of like even spirituality. I'm sure you see, see when I 
talk about maturity, humility, I and mean, these concepts, they're not understood by the, the Western way of uh, thinking. Like humility, for example, is never understood. And uh, even in the spiritual, the new age spiritual circles, people prescribe to so many things that just so hilarious. Do you, do you see that often? I see, I see a lot of that, man. I see a lot of that, you know, and again, I'm not saying it to point blank. Again, I'm a product of all of this as well, you know, because I'm from the UK. I was born and bred here. So, you know, the programming that I've got, I've had to kind of remove, you know, the, 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 the mud or the shit from the eye, so to speak. So, yeah, in the West, man, we're like, what do you call it? You know, like the ostrich with its head in the ground or, you know, we'll just say like, you just got your head up your ass, basically. You know, there's those sayings where we think we're so the thing, we're the ultimate that, you know, when it happens to us, well, this is the awakening. This is the time. But if we deal with what it really is, you know, every single person, as long as you're present, that is the time. So whether it was the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, or a thousand years ago, that was the time of the great awakening, you know, for the, there was shifts within the cultures within that get us to where we are now. It's all part of this continuum, you know, and it's because we isolate and we segregate and we divide and, all of that type of stuff in this world. That's why we would say the things that we say, you know, think it sounds cool or sounds smart or that we're evolving. And, you know, about, as I said, it's like, it's, it's a continuum. So, um, yeah, there's a lot, man. You know, there's, you know, I always say, you know, in my talks, you know, you have people who go to Peru, for example, and spend, you know, eight weeks at a retreat, you know, working with the medicine and then they come back to the UK and they're a shaman, you know, and they're, you know, they're a practitioner and work with the plants and they merge their technologies, you know, whatever they do with the new lessons that they've got. And I'm saying that to say that I'm all for it, but don't think that you, the thing that you're doing is any better than, you know, what the people who keep it really simple are, have been doing, you know, for all, for all of these years. And then we're no more advanced than they are and, um, you know, I'll, I'll leave it to each individual. If you feel that, and how's the awakening now? You know, it's the last days. As I say, you know, we're in the last days, but that's what they said my grandparents were saying and probably their grandparents were saying it's the last days, you know, because it's just where you're at in your cycle, you know? And when you're reborn again, like you are every morning, every day, you know, these cycles, that's the awakening then. And you should be kind of being awoken and dying or coming to the end several times through your life there should be several awakenings you know but it's a it is more of a personal journey how I how I understand it now if we're talking about a global thing a global awakening um it's no different again from you know I just use principles you know like I don't know if you can remember the um Rodney King beating of um back in the 90s and um <laughs> that was an awakening, you know, people were becoming aware that there was police brutality taking place, but this is the first time it had ever been recorded. So what came out was the fact that this awakening that people were realizing wasn't anything new. This had been going on for generations, you know, for decades, but it was just an awakening to the group of people who were then able to view it at that time. And then if we fast forward to the last couple of years and the police brutality that's taken place and people are like, we can't believe this is going on. This is like they're awoken, they, you know, aware of this. But again, this is something that's been going on. So I use it in the same way, whether it's the good, the bad or the ugly. It just happens when you perceive it, when it's in your focus and in your reference point, it's an awakening for you. 
And like I said, because this part of the world that we're in is the child of planet Earth, who've, who've inherited, because this story is basically, the, the, you know, the, the custodianship of this planet has been handed over to several groups and communities over millenniums now. And it's just in a part of the world now where they're going through that cycle, we're going through a cycle, and we're realising it for the first time. But I'm pretty sure there's elders and people from other places. But oh, we, you know, we know exactly what's going down. We've seen it happen before. So you know, enjoy it. Exper- enjoy the experience. You know, whether you're new to this or you're, you know, you're, it's, you know, it's an, an, old, an old concept that you're, you know, you're dealing with. And just as I tell people, like, just know where you fit within the story, where you fit within the script. That's really what's important. And you know, so for me, there's been an awakening when I first started buying these books and getting my that was my awakening. You know, that was I, that's when I became awake and I've got people around me that you know was becoming awake at the same time, you know, time period that, that I was that I could engage with and talk with. And then we were trying to convince people and they weren't ready at that time. It wasn't their season. And then in some cases it was months, weeks, years later that they came into their enlightenment. And that's just how it is. So it is kind of arrogant when we just think the world's waking up. And no, it's just in this part of the world where we've been put to sleep that we're waking up. But in other parts, they've been they've been wide awake. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. That's so beautiful. So I, I, I take away this. The great awakening is ever present. It's ever present. And it's available for you the moment you're ready. There you go. When the student is ready, the teacher will appear. You know, there's those kind of things. So, yeah, there's more people who are ready. There's more people who are asking questions. Therefore, they're being taught. And it may feel like there's a global shift. There's a global thing happening. And I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying, you know, that when we think that we're pioneering something new and, you know, this is this is biblical, as you said, this has been written, you know, and prophesied by many people, as well as the end of the world has been prophesied and been predicted by many people and it hasn't happened yet, you know, in the way that we understand that end of the world to be, but maybe it is. It's just our perspective of what the awakening and what the ending actually is. Yeah, yeah. End of an era, end of a being, uh, end of a doing things the way we do. Yeah, it go. could be. Yeah, because end, end of the world can be just end of a, a something old that doesn't serve anymore. Mm, exactly so yeah it it all depends on who's telling the story and how they're getting you to interpret the story will determine how you you know how you see the outcome but um yeah we've pretty been limited in our versions of the story you know we've got kind of like religious perspectives and political perspectives and the perspectives that we've been given through our education or indoctrination so that's pretty much our reference points and our parents who didn't pretty much didn't know either because they were programmed by the same programs. So yeah, it takes, it takes a lot to break that and to come out of that, you know, your comfort zone and question yourself, question your religion, question, you know, your education to question these things is not the way it was, you know, it was designed to be. It just meant to serve and continue with what it is. So yeah, there's, there is a, an awakening for lack of a better word as far as that there's more people communicating and having conversations about these things which I think is really cool yeah yeah, see where it goes because actions speak louder than words Mm, true (laughs) totally so we touched on so many things um thank you for that I think we kind of covered the whole like put down on the table about the whole global stuff and awakening and psychedelics and uh now, just for the last part of the conversation, I want to come back to you. 
and your journey with uh, becoming um, uh, becoming a you know mycologist, becoming a teacher in uh, cultivation, the whole process, and uh, maybe you want to talk to us about that, and also your collaboration with Double Blind. Um, you are now leading the course. Is it two point Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit more about this adventure? It's an adventure, isn't it? It's um. Definitely, is, yes, yes, the adventure, yeah. the hero's the hero's journey. You know, yeah. like it's an adventure. So, what's ironic is today, April the tenth, is actually the first year anniversary of my teacher, brother, elder. Mentor, guide, friend, Kalindi Ee. It was on this day one year ago that he actually made a transition um, into the spiritual realms, um, and it was him and his knowledge and wisdom that actually gave me the first kick up the arse, as well as inspiration to take this subject matter seriously. So, as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, this was something that I considered a taboo subject, and I wasn't delving into it and not taking it seriously and not giving it its true value and evaluation. And um, within the community that I was in and sharing that, you know, I'm hearing a lot about psychedelics and mushrooms and stuff like that. Um, who's the best person to speak with? And they basically, you know, several people pointed me in the direction of Kalindi EE. So um, with that said, that's how I got into and was taught about, you know, mycology and the studying of mushrooms or fungi. And um, I was given one-to-one tutelage by him and he basically taught me, gave me my first entry points into, you know, cultivating. With that said, I was always interested in nature and, you know, just being part of learning how to grow food and stuff like that. But um, it wasn't called in my teenage years to really be, you know, delving into that sub into those subjects. But again, I got into my late 20s, early 30s, and I was taking this stuff a lot more seriously, my, you know, further awakenings along my journey. And then um, I basically went back to study, man. I went to go and study horticulture and organic food growing, which um, really inspired me. My two favorite subject areas at that time was soil science and composting. And then I found out the magic behind soil and the magic behind composting was mycelium, which was, you know, this fungi kingdom. And, you know, with my interest in cultivating from my technology for myself, learning about these things, I decided that, I had a background working with young people, primarily in creative arts, music, filmmaking, and other, you know, sports and stuff like that. But I felt I was going to take a new tangent and direction with my career, with my life, and really focus on what mushrooms, mycology, psilocybin, and all these things really have to offer and can bring to the table. So I went and studied for several years and start, yeah, started getting my head around everything. So I, you know, was self-taught as well as went and studied at college, went back to college. And that led me to partnering up with people like Double Blind, the London Psychedelic Society, many societies around the country, local community groups and teaching people how to grow, you know, gourmet and medicinal mushrooms. Um, that's what I do now for a living, in addition to sharing my psychedelic research. And um, as you may or may not know yourself or the listeners at least, uh, mushrooms play a very key part in us being in the here and now we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for mushrooms you know for multiple reasons you know ultimately they created soil and we know how important soil is you know if we don't have soil we don't have plants you know and if we don't have plants we don't have human beings and animals and stuff like that so they keep the plants alive they actually create the soil keep the plants alive and they're basically the matrix or the neurological 
you know, part of planet Earth or Mother Earth. You know, they keep keep her, you know, doing what she does. So um, with that said, I've partnered with, with people like the Double Blind and the Psychedelic Society who are keen to get people cultivating at home, you know. So that's what that has been geared around for the last seven years. I've been teaching people how to, you know, grow their gourmet medicinal mushrooms in their back gardens, you know, on their windowsills and anywhere and any place they can find a space to do it. So, um, yeah. Mm, amazing, beautiful. So how do you see this movement of um there is a, obviously a movement going on right now and how like how do you see us in the legal landscape with the mushrooms especially the psychoactive strains yeah, well again like you said earlier, it's like really tricky you know simply because it's illegal all well, the country i mean it's <laughs> illegal I know I've got, you know, I'm hooked up with people in the United States where it's being legalized as well as decriminalized in certain places and spaces. So it enables, you know, the transportation, the distribution and the partaking of these things and you don't have to worry about it. So um, that's not the case here. Um, but with that said, you know, I come, basically I come from the streets, Susan, man, you know, where I grew up and I've seen, I've had to make changes and shifts in my life to become a better version of myself, so to speak. I work with young people, like I said, mentioned, who have been kicked out of school, just come out of prison, who have made some real poor decisions in their life, based, you know, ultimately breaking the law to do things just to make money. And um, so I'm saying all that to say that if you took the responsibility of growing your own medicine or technology to enable you to become a better version of yourself, to deal with your depression, your anxiety, and you're really responsible about it, that I really think that shouldn't be, you know, held against you. <laughs> Um, you know, I'm not inspiring or encouraging anybody to be some kind of big time grower and distributor of drugs and stuff like that. But, you know, just like I tell people, you can grow basil on your windowsill, on your coriander um, for your food cuisine. You know, if you really feel you're in a place and space where you need help and you can't get the help and support because the system's not allowing it, you either need to go to somewhere where you can do it. Or you do like what these kids do, sell crack cocaine on the streets and heroin and all these so-called bad things just for their survival, which I'm not saying is a good thing, but that's where they feel their backs up against the wall, where these are the decisions they've got to make and they make it. So I then would tell people, you've got to decide what decision you're going to make. And you as an adult, you know, I mean, if you're an adult, you should be able to decide, you know, how to go about doing that responsibly. So yeah, and then I just feel that, yeah, you know, uh, I personally wouldn't wait you know, I'll be honest and straight with you, you know, I smoke, you know, or not as much recently, but um, smoke cannabis, you know, and done things that were against the law. You know, I was with kids, we was in school drinking alcohol. That was against the law. And it's not allowed, you know, but it was taking place. So that should just be an indication as to my thoughts around, you know, what are we doing? You know, there's people who can wait, there's people who are not going to wait. And I'm not one to point fingers and judge people as to what they do. And um, I don't make the laws and I'm not going to enforce the law either. So you know, just, you know, be responsible and be wise about, you know, how you approach this. Yeah, great point. And I think <clears throat> we have great people in the UK now. I think Psychedelic Society mentioned uh, that we can write to our MPs. We can, like, Conservative Party MP, one of the MPs, I can't yeah, remember his right. name. I mean, there are people now stepping up. There are people, they, you know, Professor David Nutt and, you know, some of these um leaders in the field of mental health that's why i'm hopeful a lot of people you know they say that maybe we, you know 
looking at psychedelics through the mental health lens is not good. But at the same time, in the West, in the mainstream, maybe we need it in the beginning to crack people open into what these are. And maybe we need these means to just um, help you know, help the decriminalization happening and uh, seeing some progress for future. You know, then I'm all for it, man. I'm like, everybody just needs to play their position. You know, I always say it's like a football team. Everybody mm -hmm. can't be the striker. We need different people in different places doing different things. And, you know, from the, you know, the medical, clinical perspective, we need the Professor Nuts, the Dr. Ben Sessers, the Robin Carhartts all doing their job, doing their role. We need, you know, the grassroots researchers, mycologists, you know, the shamans in Siberia, the Kunderos of South America, the gangers of South Africa. We need us all doing what we do, and, you know, and just respect everybody's position in this. Nobody's better placed than anybody, really, as far as the best way to move this forward. But if I was going to give credit to particular people, then I'll say, well, let's go to the gatekeepers. Let's go to the people who've been holding these mysteries. And, you know, they're more in tune and qualified to, you know, tell us what we should be doing with laws. And, you know, is it good to give it to underage children? You know, we're speaking from a non, you know, um, a non-experiential perspective because we've not come from a culture where we do that openly so why don't we go and ask groups and cultures that do that openly and see you know after the children have the psychedelics do they die you know is there a higher rate of suicides you know these things you know and then then we can weigh things up from that perspective but early days still it's like really we're in the infant stages of this story in this part of the world when it comes to you know reconnecting with these plants so I just feel that, yeah, we should get to a place and space where it's legal, decriminalised, but when and where, I'm not sure, and I wouldn't hold my breath either. Waiting for that day, I would just get on with it. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you for your insight. Yeah, I feel like everybody's playing the role. We're all connected. It's a collective effort. Mm. And, yeah, with the maturity and respect, I think we're going to do a better job this time, I have a feeling. Um I think, I don't know who said this, but somebody, one of the frontiers of the Renaissance said, oh, don't, don't make a mess this time. Let's just be more mature and take responsibility. And uh, yeah, and work with those people who already know the plants, the gatekeepers. I think we need more of them. We need to learn more. And um, again, comes back to humility. I think we need to let go of the arrogancy of, you know, like one trip and then claiming shaman type of thing. We need to get away. And one other question I wanted to ask you about the mushrooms. Um, like how, if you were to put them in a couple sentences, like what would you say about mushrooms and, and their impact? I know you said if it, if it wasn't for them, we won't be here. But in terms of um, maybe like a regular use of whether recreational you said even recreationally is okay as long as you're responsible yeah so um i, I, I really I, not to go against you but even if you're irresponsible man like we if we refer to these things as teacher plants you know like we do then if you use it irresponsibly you're going to be taught you know it's just like this is really like have if we have as much faith as we do in nature or well, as i do i know that not everybody is you know gonna approach this in the same way so like 
I guess that some of the guys who I went to school with that were doing you utilizing these, they weren't doing it responsibly. And you know, like they were like, but I can pretty be assured through what I remember being shared that they still had some very profound life-changing experiences that was useful to them, that's helped them in their adulthood, man. And if we had only waited till it was the right set and setting, the right, you know, and this, that, then they may have missed out on that. So that's why I wouldn't judge, you know, the recreational or the, you know, the relaxed approach to it. I think that after a while, some time of doing that, the plants, the fun guy will teach you that, you know, it's not all about this. You know, it's going to pull you into places and spaces where you're like, oh, shit, this is what the experience is about. And you start to respect it more. You know, if you did initially step into it from an immature, you know, disrespectful perspective, you're, you're going to get taught, so to speak. So um, as far as, you know, the way to go about it and what I would say about mushrooms and using it, it's like I go back to the saying of like getting where you fit. Like it's just like for me, uh, like Kalindi would say, it's like, I'd take my hat off to anybody who decides to step up on partaking these things, man. Whether you're doing it, you know, or, or half a gram or you're a, a heroic dose partaker, whether you're doing microdosing, you know, or whether you're just, you know, observing people who are doing it and no longer judging them anymore, you know, because they're doing it. Like, this is just the way I feel that we're going to move this forward and this organism will get its, you know, be put in its right place. You know, when we talk about mushrooms as a whole, you know, we've got the psychedelic mushrooms, but as you know, we've got medicinal mushrooms, ratio, you know, lion's mane that are coming out now that are helping with anxiety, depression, they help with neurogenesis and stuff like that. So there's ways in with mushrooms in particular that are not breaking the law and we can talk about freely and we should raise awareness and consciousness about these technologies and how they're also used, you know, to support humanity in, you know, becoming you know, you mentioned at the beginning about the immune system, which, you know, the COVID-19 attacks and messes us all up. But, you know, some of our biggest immune builders can come by way of fungi, you know, and, you know, integrating them into your day-to-day -day life. You know, so I encourage that, you know. So if you choose not to partake in the psychoactive ones, which I'm not telling anybody to break the law to do that, but then there's other fungi out there that really complement the human body and you know and supports us in you know that healing process as well as the mental physical physically and mentally amazing wow this is beautiful thank you so much for all the wisdom darren and as we come to the end of our conversation um just quick takeaway i want to say from what you said i heard that even if you come into it recreationally with no knowledge sooner or later you will be taught yeah, I would say that. And if it's not directly through the mushrooms or the plants that you're dealing with, you're going to then want to talk to somebody, man. You're going to want to have a conversation like we're having. And you're going to be like, oh, I thought I was just taking this for fun. And then this happened. And what does that mean? Has that happened to you before? You know, you start having those kind of conversations and then somebody may say to you, yeah, well, next time when you do it, you should approach it like this. And then that's how you learn. You know, that's how you learn. Yeah, yeah. You know, come through you've been watching all the youtube videos and you've got all the you know the terence mckenna books and all the rest of it some people just don't get into it like that some people are out at the weekend they've never heard of this in their life they meet somebody say oh we're about to do mushrooms or we're about to do ketamine or you know whatever it is and they don't know what they're getting into but they still have life-changing experiences that support them in becoming you know who they are so yeah it's you know a matter of you know being taught directly by the plants or indirectly by way of talking to other people and learning about those processes. Yes, I'm not telling anybody or encouraging people to be irresponsible. I'm just saying that there are some people out there though that this is how they enter the field, man. And 
there's nothing wrong with that, I don't feel. It's not bad. You know, it can only be to the good. There's young people out there right now, Saturday, this evening, they're going to be knocking back loads of alcohol, you know, and nobody would be questioning them about how irresponsible they are being kind of thing. And they'll wake up tomorrow with hangovers, being sick, pissing, urinating and <laughs> pooing on themselves. And that's normal. You know, that's normal. So um, I've never seen that effect with psychedelics on people. I'm saying that to say. So um, that's why I'm, I would be more wary of it, you know, it being alcohol. Like, like we need to be really careful with these things more than we actually are with, with the, with the tech, plant technology and the fungi. Amazing. Yeah. <clears throat> so I love your approach in non-judgment. That's so amazing. As a, as a teacher, as a guide, as a, um, you know, lecturer, I think on these plants, I think it's beautiful to have that non-judgment approach. And also one last takeaway. So the plants has their own agenda. Fungi has its own agenda. It will organize itself in a way that we probably will never understand. Mm. and probably they will come in um, I think it was the last conversation from my Peruvian shaman she said they they are already coming like they already started to act um, they have their own way of infiltrating and uh, reorganizing the whole thing yeah. Yeah, so just like they organize things within the soil they organize things outside above the soil I think they're organizing me and others to do the work that we do I always talk about, you know, the zombie ants that get inoculated by spores from particular mushrooms that end up doing the mushrooms bidding, you know, and then the mushrooms go out of their heads, in fact. So with that said, I think, you know, the mushrooms and the technology itself organizes things above the ground too. And we're a byproduct of this big project that's been taking place for millions of years now, <laughs> you know. And um, so it's just still, you know, um, an interesting time that we're in. And um, we're just doing some reorganizing and realigning. And um, just like the mushrooms play a big part in composting, you know, in breaking down the old organic materials to create new stuff. And that's why I think we're going through one of those cycles and it's supporting us in doing that. Yeah, amazing. Oh my God, this has been so educational. And mm-hmm. thank you so much again for your time. Thank you. And, um, one last Closing words of wisdom for our listeners, if there's any. Something. Yeah, man, just, just don't sleep on these mushrooms, man. <laughs> just, you know, yeah, just like, yeah, explore them as an organism. You know, if we're, you know, I really feel like it's, an, it's a technology, an organism that plays a very key part, as I said, as to why we're here in the here and now that we're in. And they're going to support us in moving forward. And um, if the more of us, you know, utilize them as allies, as they are, as partners, um, we can make the world a better place. I really do feel that. Amazing. I love all the books behind you. There's some really cool things behind you there as well. There's a skull there. Yeah. I see a lot of like, what what is the uh, stick with the the red? So that's what's commonly called a trident. So you find that in indigenous cultures like in Africa, India, and um various systems around where it's utilized. It has many different reasons, you know, it represents three worlds. Um, you've got deities like Shiva in Hinduism and Kali who work with the trident. It's a, a tool, a form of technology, and it's red and black because in a Brazilian system um, where they would have the 
um, Orisha, which come by way of Africa. You have the Orisha known as Legba or Ishu, whose color is red and black. His sacred number is three. And there's all that type of stuff going on. So yeah, it's all, sim it's all symbolism and skulls in general just represent the ancestors and the afterlife. So I'm very much into my ancestral traditions and practices and what they will symbolize and bring them into my life, into my world, into my home. Amazing. Thank you for explaining. I find that psychedelics somehow, they take us through this symbolism. Like the more we get involved and connected, the more we connected to symbolism as well, I think. It just goes hand in hand in a way. And what was really cool for me, you know, what I appreciate is that I was into all the symbolism and stuff before psychedelics. I've been into the symbolism since I was, you know, in my early teens. And um, like I said, I didn't try psychedelics until I was in my mid to late 30s. So, well, my early 30s, should I say. And then um, with that said, it all just started to make more sense like as to why I knew about these symbols, symbols like this that you find on this book here that I bought in, you know, in 1996, I think, you know, I was reading this book. So with that said, I was familiar with these and then you have experiences and you see serpents and snakes and you realise that, well, this symbol here in that book represents healing, you know, and um, that's what we say that plants do, that they make you see serpents and dragons or things like that that also can offer healing and you see where the ancient groups got it from and how we're just going again we're going through those same cycles same experiences and um, it's just new for us what was new for me yeah when we're, ready, when we're ready we receive it in the present moment it's always been there right yeah, yeah that's right that's right amazing thank you so where can the listeners find you how can they connect you we will have your links we will cool. have your, um, you know, all the connect, con uh, contacts for you, but uh, just wanted to mention anything that they can find you. Sure. So on social media, I don't know if it stays up on the screen, but I go by Darren LeBaron. So I've got a website, DarrenLeBaron.com, um, on social media, which is pretty much YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. That's how you can find me. And um, by way of those um, platforms, you can follow, add, like, or whatever it is that you've got to do on those things to connect and um yeah man you can feel free to feel free to reach out you know as i said i partnered with double blind and london psychedelic society and you might find videos and stuff of mine just floating about on the internet as well if you just search my name Pamela baron also known as darren springer amazing thank you yes we'll definitely add your links so they can find you easier what a beautiful conversation thank you and Hopefully we'll have you back for part two sometime in the future. As when you're ready. Yeah, amazing. All the best with all of your projects and everything you're doing and your contributions. Yeah. Grateful. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Nice. Thanks everybody for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, like Darren said, if you want to reach out to him, reach out to me. Feel free and yeah, give us a like, talk to us. Um, it is a time for having these conversations now. So hope you enjoyed it. See you guys on the next one. Bye for now. Thank you so much for joining us. Psychedelic Conversations podcast is designed to educate, inform and expand awareness. For more information, please head over to psychedelicconversations.com. You can also share with your friends or leave a review so that we can reach more people. You can also join us in our private Facebook group, 
to keep the conversation going. This show is for information purposes only and it is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.